All right. Got some tough stuff to work through tonight. So let's pray. Lord, we're so glad that you've given us the scripture to shine light upon our path, to renew our minds and to help us to think rightly about the world that we live in, the people that we live among, the nation that you've placed us in, the state, the city. And, and so tonight, Lord, as we continue to make our way uh, through this powerful letter to the Romans, Lord, uh, let the power of your word go deep into us and shape the way we think tonight. Meet us where we are at in life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to see you tonight. Um, you know, we're, if, if this is your first time on Wednesday, this is night three-ish, yeah. So we're in uh, the book of Romans, and man, Romans just comes out hot with intense truth. And the, the big idea of the first three chapters is that all, all people are guilty before God. And the first group, there's three groups that Paul is dealing with. The first group is the really kind of pagan, you know, aren't interested in virtue, are interested in experimentation and going as far as you can in human behavior. And so kind of the really nasty sinners. And then in chapter two, he's gonna turn his attention to people who actually applaud virtue and, and who applaud morality and even attempt to live at least to a certain degree by the morality that they applaud. They fail, however, as everyone does. And then there are the Jews who have the scriptures and the prophets and all of it. And Paul will conclude in chapter three that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. So you can look at those nasty sinners in chapter one or those who applaud virtue in chapter two or the Jews themselves who have the scriptures and the prophets and without Jesus, they're all doomed, they're all damned. That's the big idea. So last week, we looked at the de-evolution of man. Man was not created and then began to evolve upward. He was created, and then because he sinned against God and turned away from God, he began to devolve downward. And so we'll read the last few verses of Romans chapter 1, and then we'll, we'll discuss so verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of right, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. <laughs> like we don't even have, a, we got to invent some more evil. 
disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So, so this is the way it goes. So last week we talked about how sin, turning away from God, will eventually lead to an abandoning of even scientific biological design that men, women will abandon the natural function of sexual relationship with men and have those relations with other women. Men will do the same. They'll abandon women and be with other men. Like this is the way it will go, the Bible says. When you turn away from God, it will go that way. But then Paul goes a step further. It won't stop there. Because listen, homosexuality and, and all kinds of you know, perversions of God's design have been around pretty much from the beginning, but they typically happen at the edges, in the shadows, out on the fringes of a society and so on, typically. The debased mind here in Romans 1, it's the mind that not only commits the sin, but now believes that it's proper and good to do so. So it doesn't need to be done out on the edges and in the fringes of society. It needs to come forward out of the dark and into the light of society. And he goes further. There's another step in this process that Though they know God's righteous decree, we'll find out in chapter 2 that God has written his law upon every human being. It's law upon their heart. Every human has the law of God written upon their heart. They have a conscience that God has given them that awakens them to the reality of right and wrong. Now, they can go against it, obviously. So... There's a further step, and not only now does a, do people believe it's okay to do this thing, but they begin to demand that everyone else recognize this thing and applaud this thing and embrace this thing as righteous and good. Okay, that's last stop on the train to damnation. The debased mind demands society's approval of clear sin in the Bible. We are now in a place where, you know, 30, I was thinking about this, 30 years ago, in the early 90s, where we are at as a society, as a world, was unthinkable. I was trying to think, you know, 30 years ago, 
we were, we were still living in Southern California. We were getting ready to move to Idaho and thinking, you know, boy, the world's getting pretty rough and all that, right? But I was thinking in terms of the gang activity in Southern California and this and that. And man, God's calling us to Idaho. And, and that's so cool to be able to raise our kids in and, and this, you know, this wonderful, more rural kind of a place, beautiful and excited about all that. And this, this thought of a societal embracing of these kinds of sins that the Bible talked about was only just barely coming on the radar. I mean, it wasn't even really a blip at that point. Even 12, 13 years ago, we had a Democratic president who refused to uh, come out against gay marriage. Barack Obama said, no, I'm against it. What are we, 20, 24? Yeah, th uh, 13 years ago. And here we are. You will scarcely find any politician, either party, that's against it. So today, we even have formerly faithful Bible-believing churches now affirming and performing gay marriages, ordaining gay clergy. Last month was shocking to a lot of people. Pope Francis approved the Catholic church that Catholic priests can bless same-sex couples, not marry them, not, not perform a wedding, but can bless them. So it's a, it's a step of embrace, of acceptance by the, the Roman Catholic Church. The waters are so much murkier than they were not so long ago. How are we to think about these issues now? Now that they've moved from the shadows and the edges and, and into the main stage, the center of society, many in our church are touched by this issue. I'm guessing there's probably a few of you tonight that either you have children who have come out as gay or you know LGBTQ or whatever, or you have friends or you have coworkers, uh, acquaintances and so on, because it's, it's just so pervasive and that's where we are. So it's a, it's a issue that we have to deal with in some, uh, with some thoughtfulness. So recently, um, Alistair Begg, pastor from Cleveland, Ohio, well, Scotland originally, Cleveland, Ohio is where he pastors now, has for, I think, 30 plus years. Wonderful Bible teacher. I have received a uh, blessing from his teaching over the years for sure. But a, a clip of a podcast from a few months ago uh, went viral just a few days ago. And in this clip, Alistair Begg was recounting uh, how a grandmother asked him about her grandson, whom she said was about to be married to a transgender person. And, and the grandma wanted to know, should I attend the wedding or not? I mean, she was conflicted about it. What do I do? And so... Alistair Begg asked her if her grandson knew that she was a follower of Jesus and, and that uh, her 
you know, she doesn't affirm, you know, non-biblical kind of marriage. It's only between, you know, does she know that? Essentially, he was asking. And she said, yeah, he does. My grandson does know this, that I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. And he knows I don't, you know, condone these other types of sexual, you know, relationships. So Alistair Begg then advised her to go to the wedding and even bring a gift for the couple. Well, that clip went viral and uh, Alistair Begg was criticized loudly. In fact, the American Family Radio, they pulled his uh, Truth For Life broadcast from their network as a result. And so in a, in a recent sermon a week or so ago, he, he addressed the controversy. The sermon was called Compassion Versus Condemnation. And he kind of doubled down on his, you know, what his conviction was. And, uh, and he warned about, quote, our inclination towards Phariseeism. Now, you know what that is, right? Following external rules and then, you know, judging others who maybe are not and that kind of thing. Um, and he then pointed out how Jesus met and ate and drank with the publicans and the, you know, the tax collectors, the sinners. And it was the Pharisees who condemned Jesus for meeting with them and being at their dinner party. You know, oh, he's a, he's a drunkard and, a, you know, and a, a glutton, they said about Jesus. So there's no question in my mind that Alistair Big is a fine Bible teacher and He's a, he, he is orthodox in his beliefs about marriage and human sexuality and so on. He is a Bible guy through and through. So the question becomes, was he right to advise this sweet grandma concerning her grandson and this so-called wedding that was coming up? Was he wise in advising her towards being compassionate by attending the wedding. So let me give you just a couple of thoughts, just two main thoughts tonight about this. Um, I understand Alistair's heart, but I don't think it was the best advice. And, and here's why. There is... There's no such thing, from a biblical standpoint, in God's eyes, no such thing as a gay wedding or marriage. It does not exist in biblical terms. So God defines marriage as a covenant between a man and a woman. It's a covenantal union. It's not a piece of paper from the courthouse. It's not uh, even a... Uh, a um, sort of a, we'll go 50-50 on this thing and, and make some kind of, it's a covenant where both parties, the man and the woman, they are all in, in an indissoluble covenant. And so to pretend that a union between a man and a man, a woman and a woman, and of course there's all these other so-called categories today, it's just a lie. It's not true. 
It's being unfaithful to the truth of the word of God. So one of the characteristics of love, of true love, God's love, 1 Corinthians 6, is love rejoices, celebrates with the truth. So, so love is tethered to the truth. It rejoices and celebrates with the truth. If truth is present, uh, if truth is not present, I should say, love cannot celebrate. I cannot celebrate that. Truth and love always show up to the party together. You can't separate them. But secondly, we cannot celebrate that which God condemns. And I realize it's a similar point, but listen to this. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. God does not join two men together or two women together. And so to celebrate and congratulate the two men or the two women or whoever would be offensive to heaven. Proverbs 2.14 warns of people who rejoice in evil and delight in the frowardness of the wicked. So I think it's, it's similar in my mind, in my thinking, to the Christian bakers, the famous story of a few years back, I think they're in Oregon, or was it Colorado, Oregon, whatever, but it was, but they had the bake shop and a, a homosexual couple came in to ask for a, a wedding cake for their wedding and the, these Christian bakers said, I'm sorry. And they knew each other, they were actually friends, they were, you know, acquaintances at least, and they said, I'm sorry, we can't do that because our convictions are that God ordains marriage to be a, a man and a woman, and, and we love you guys, we do, but we can't, we can't do that. And of course, it was a, was a big deal, a national deal. Now, that baking couple they would bake cakes for gay people, whoever, all the time. It wasn't a big deal. But when they said, we want this for our wedding, that was the line. We're not, we can't rejoice in that. They would say, we do, that's where the line is for us. And we love it. We hope you'll understand our convictions. But we, we just can't do that. And of course, the, the gay couple took them to court and, and the whole thing. And that's certainly what can happen and many times does happen, that love that's tethered to the truth will be called hate. But Christian, as long as there isn't hate in you, then you just take one for the team. You take it for Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed are you when all men revile you for my sake. So, so listen, with, with our remaining uh, time, I'm just going to throw out a couple of foundational truths from the Bible just to reorient ourselves 
about, you know, the, the building blocks, what God did. So, so first of all, the first one is the truth about gender. Okay, because this is, this is really, really big, really important. So in the, in the creation account, uh, by the fifth day, God had created all the terrestrial and celestial stuff, but, but clearly he was saving uh, his, his crowning creation for last. So there would be a creature that would uniquely be like God, that would uniquely bear his image. So I'll read it to you, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then jumping to verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Through the whole first part of the chapter, God would create, it's good, create, it's good, let there be light, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he creates the image-bearing creature, male and female, and he says it's very good. It's very good. Listen, if you're a human being tonight, God delights in you as an image-bearer. Though you may be separated tonight from God by your sin, he still loves you. He still wants to bring you into a close and intimate relationship with him. So man includes male and female. The word man is in this context is gender neutral. Kind of like when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon for that first time uh, or you know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, stepped onto that Hollywood soundstage for the first time. He said, this is one small step for man. Now, he meant to say, for a man. He screwed up his line, but that's okay. And it's one giant leap for mankind. So Armstrong wasn't saying, I scored one for all the dudes, right? No, he was saying this is for all humans, for man, which includes females and males. And that's the way the Bible uses that term. Mankind is gender neutral, includes men and women. So God's crowning achievement in creation was a being called man. Man made up of two categories, male and female, and these two categories are not merely descriptive of all humans, they are prescriptive. What do you mean? These are not on a spectrum with gradations in between them. No, there are two categories only. There is male and there is female. And there's nothing in between. They are distinct and separate. So this passage, it also unites 
sex and gender. So the biological classification is exactly the same as the social classification. So, So the reproductive and the social duties of the man is, pre- is presented within the same gender as it is for the woman. Nowhere in scripture do we find men or women being encouraged to question their, their gender identity based upon their feelings or their tastes or their tendencies or, or whatever. So, Notice there were two essential activities. That man, made up of male and female, that they were told by God to do. Two activities. Make babies is the first one. Be fruitful. And the second, subdue the earth. Dominate the earth, cultivate the earth, harness the earth. You have authority over the earth. This is what man, made up of male and female, were to do. And and as far as I can tell, that's what we're still to do. And he created the male and the female body to uniquely complement one another. So biology bears this out. The male would provide the seed, the woman, the egg, through the joyful experience of marital sex. God's design, it hasn't changed. Not a bit. It's truth, whether you believe it or not. But secondly, in both the Old and the New Testament, there are admonishments for males and females to to stay in their lane. (laughs) So let me give you a a for instance or two here. So Deuteronomy 22, verse five, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now that seems kind of nitpicky, a little judgy. (laughs) Who's to say, is that really a woman's cloak or not? Okay, so this is where a lot of people's minds go, how do, is that a woman? I can't tell, it seems sort of, So listen, God is not, he's not being the fashion police here. But this is not a trivial matter that he's dealing with. He's laying out the importance of recognizing and honoring the uniqueness of male and female. Now you have this all over the New Testament, but this this one, this one to me is a good one because this is a hard passage. Uh, in some ways, but I think here's what it's getting, at least a lot of what it's getting at. 1 Corinthians 11.4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Fellas, I see some ball caps in here tonight. Oh, stocking caps and ball caps. I preached last week with a ball cap on. Every wife who prays or prophesied, 
ladies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. I see a lot of uncovered heads in here tonight, ladies. <laughs> the ladies are stealing their guys' hats now. So men were not to cover their heads. Women were to cover their heads. Now, I, I'm, I don't have the time to plow on that particular issue. But the point is that Paul is not making a technical point about style. He's not saying that all men for all time should never wear hats to church. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying that all women for all time should wear Hat, uh, should uh, wear hats. Men shouldn't. The big idea is that men should stay in their lane of being male when it comes to your particular cultural context, and the woman should stay in her lane. So Paul's not saying that there's one type of clothing or dress for males and for females for all time, you know, that there'll never be fashion and so on that goes in. And he's not saying that. He's saying that all cultures recognize the difference between men and women. The difference is part of the created order, God's design, and each culture recognizes that at least to one degree or another. So, so stay in the lane and thus honor God in that way. Listen, if it was a technical point that Paul, the founders of our nation used to wear tights and wear wigs, okay? We, you know, we'd be in a lot of trouble if that was the case. Women should stay in their lane when it comes to the created order and to the cultural expressions of that order. And, and so it's beautiful and it's wise. It's God-distinct design of his image-bearing creatures that we do so. So, you may be wrestling with identity confusion, gender dysphoria, the professionals call it today. And I don't doubt that that's real for many people. Don't doubt it at all. If you are or have children who are, the, the answer is not surgery. Feelings, they often change. They just do change over time. This doesn't mean that your feelings aren't real. It means that they're unreliable over the long haul. And so you don't wanna make lifelong decisions in a moment, of, in a season of time in your life that are at best questionable. When you build your identity, however, on the Lord and on his word, then, then you are, well, Jesus said, it's like building your house upon a rock. The storms will come, you know, tough times will come and all of that, but you'll stand. The house will stand. Your life won't be destroyed. Well, then, I want to give you, before we 
head into some time in worship and prayer together, um, the truth about sexuality. And let me just lay that out briefly. Sex is good. It's God's design. So sex is for procreation, that is making babies, but it's also for pleasure. And you can see that clearly in the Bible, in places like Song of Solomon, but many others as well. But it's so powerful and so beautiful that God designed it to be enjoyed only within the most serious of human relationships. And that is between a man and a woman who come together in covenant, in covenant. I am, ple I am pledging not just this, I am pledging me to you until to the day I die. That's going to be when we part. So all of me, I'm giving all of me to you. The Bible promotes a sexual ethic that elevates the act far above a mere biological function, urge, that, you know, can be just satisfied however a person wants. So that, that's the pagan thinking. You remember in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul's talking about this whole subject, and he quotes uh, the poets and the, the pagan philosophers who were saying, food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food. If you're hungry, you eat. Right? I mean, it's natural. So if you are sexually hungry, well, then you indulge yourself and, and satisfy yourself, however, because that's natural. Paul comes right back and he says, the body was not made for sexual immorality. Yes, the food was made for stomach, the food. <laughs> stomach was made for food. But no, the body was not made for sexual immorality. It was made for the Lord. So this elevates the act from mere biological function to the realm of the moral, the ethical, the godly, the holy. Now, many people agree with this idea, including many homosexuals, many LGBTQ folks. They agree to a sexual ethic, at least of some uh, you know, of some sort. Many, not all, they will argue for moral guidelines concerning sex. They would say, well, love has to be involved. And that's a very common kind of a ethic within that community. And, and there's even many who say, well, monogamy has to be agreed to before sex can be engaged in. And while we could, we could argue that, you know, these things are an ethic or a guideline, it's just not the ethic or the guideline that, that God has necessarily given in his word. Yes, those are good components. They are, uh, obviously. Monogamy is, 
crucial and love is central and all of that. But all of those need to be present within the marital covenant for sex to actually be authorized and holy and good and not sinful. So God's design is for sex to be enjoyed and he wants us to enjoy it within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Sexual expression in any other context is what the Bible calls sin. It's not his design. So if you're a Christian, man, you gotta reckon with this. If you're sleeping with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you gotta reckon with that. You just do. But that's what we do in our life, in our walk with God, right? We find something that's discordant you know, like when a guitar is out of tune, like, and it's like, oh man, something is really out of whack here. And so I want to bring it, bring it back into tune with God. So Lord, I'm sorry. I've been, I've been going my own way on this. I've been leaning on my own understanding. Forgive me, Lord. So though God's design is for all humanity, God's commandments um, are also for all humanity. It's not our job to judge those outside the church. So now let, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. So 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Boy, that's a punchy statement. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry, uh, drunkard, swindler, and so on. Um, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. So an important principle here. So if you know the context of 1 Corinthians 5, there was a, a younger guy who was apparently in a, in a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And, you know, early in the chapter, Paul goes, man, even the unbelievers are looking at you guys and going, ew. Like, that's gross. And so Paul says, you need to separate. We need to turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their soul may be saved. That's, that was the idea. We, this is for their benefit and for the health of the fellowship and so on. But if you're a believer, there's no acceptable justification for sex outside of marriage, period. There just isn't. There's no way to, to kind of shoehorn that in to being okay. If you're a believer, however, and you know, you got your living right and all the rest, it's not your job to judge those who don't know the Lord. But it's also not okay to affirm and rejoice in sin, as we discussed earlier. So there's the line 
as I see it in the Bible. So we're living in a day where I think, remember last week I shared the, the illustration about the statue in the plains of Dura and you know Nebuchadnezzar saying, everybody bow down to me and, and all of that. And if you do that, you know we're, we're gonna be a pluralistic culture. You don't have to give up your gods, but I'm saying you do have to embrace our God. So just, just do this thing where you bow down and worship our God and you can keep your own God and worship in the privacy. Not a problem. You won't get in trouble for that. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow. We won't do it. I fear we're in a time where a lot of Christians are going ahead and bowing. I read a study um, of college students, 18 to 23, they grew up in church, church-going families, were taught that sex outside of marriage was not okay, it was a sin. 23% uh, of the first group, which was a group, sorry, group of young people who grew up being taught that sex outside of marriage was fine. And, re, um, and uh, so, so two groups, sorry, get this straight in my brain, uh, two groups. One was a group that grew up in a Christian home. They were taught the biblical sexual ethic. You know, you remain chaste until marriage and so on. Then the second group, they grew up in a non-believing home and they were taught it's, sex is fine, be careful, you know, that kind of thing. So the first group was the, the, the people who were taught that sex outside of marriage was fine. The second group, the kids grew up in church going. So get this, 23% of the first group growing up in unbelieving homes remained virgins through college, 23%. So now how many of the Christian family kids remain virgins into college? 28%. Okay, so a little better, but not that big a difference. So, Despite the difference in upbringing, the two groups live their lives essentially the same. Why? The sociologists concluded, your church tells you one thing about sex, your culture tells you another thing about sex, and you believe the culture. That's why. And that's what's happening in our world right now, in our nation for sure, is that the Bible is saying one thing, the culture is saying the other, and many are believing the culture over the Bible. So in other words, they're bowing to the statue. So we're gonna have the worship team come up and um, and if you need prayer tonight, would love to pray for you. And maybe you've got somebody in your life who's dealing with these issues. Maybe you're dealing with these issues as a parent, a child, or whatever. Somebody at work, you've been wanting to figure out, how do, I, how do I minister to this person? How do I love them well, like Jesus? You know, how can I be in the culture, not be one of those Pharisees that just goes around condemning everybody for everything? and yet not be so, such a floppy fish where I just 
capitulate everything, you know? How can I navigate that? And so the, the simple, the simple idea is truth and love together. Just don't get them disconnected. So man, I love you. Mr., Mrs., homosexual, transgender, whatever. I'm no better than you at all. I'm a sinner. Saved by the grace of God. And I'm coming to you as someone who loves you and someone who Jesus died for. And I just want you to know him like I know him. And I'm here not to speak down to you. I'm here to wash your feet. I want to help you. And no, I can't. I can't come to your wedding. I can't. But man, don't take that as I don't love you or I don't care about you. It's just I've got to honor my God who loves you. But but marriage, that's something God designed and it's precious to him. And so listen, that you're getting married in this, you know, gay wedding, whatever it is, that it's not going to stop me from loving you. Lord, we need to love people well. Without feeling like we gotta we gotta ditch the truth to do it. So help us to navigate that. Lord, for those in here tonight, they've got a son or a daughter that's been into the LGBTQ stuff. And they've just had a hard time dealing with anger and resentment and all that kind of stuff that naturally is gonna, gonna bubble up as a human being. So I pray, God, that you, by the power of the Spirit, would grant wisdom and clarity. That they could see with your eyes and think with your mind and feel with your heart concerning their son or their daughter or their coworker or their friend. So that we might be as you were in this world, Lord. Lord, would you meet us in worship and would you meet us in prayer? In your name we pray, amen. If you need prayer tonight, we would invite you now to come up to the front and there are gonna be prayer partners ready to agree with you. And God changes lives. There are, you know,
people in our church, the stories are amazing. People who were in that lifestyle, who are now married and with children. There are stories of transformation. Paul said, hey, the drunkards and swindlers and idolaters and homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you guys. But you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because you came to Christ. That's why. And Christ changes lives. So come on down if you need prayer. Let's worship.